Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books podcast. My name is Joe Wisby and I run the at Books Beatles Instagram account where I archive my collection of 400 plus Beatles books. My guest today is Ken McNabb, a lifelong Beatles fan and well-respected journalist with Scotland's Evening Times. He brings us, and in the end, the last days of the Beatles, a fascinating insight into that tumultuous final year of the Beatles' existence. I started by asking Ken what attracted him to 1969. 69 was just such a seminal year, you know. I think of it as a, as a chaotic year and a chaotic year uh, to try and make that distinction because um, there were so many things taking place. Um, and it was just one of these tumultuous 12 months um, so that was the first initial sort of thinking behind it. The first initial concept was behind it was I thought you would be able to make it attractive simply because everything falls into that category of half a century later, which is incredible in itself. Um, so the idea was to look at everything in the context and the perspective of, of that particular year and, and also looking at it, Joe, through the prism of half a century now and trying to maybe draw a different, not, not different conclusions, because you can't, you can't alter history. It is set in stone and it is what it is. But to try and perhaps look at things through, as I say, the prism of 50 years and, and, and adopt a sort of slightly analytical approach and, and to put into context how events from one month, because I did it in this um, chronological month-by-month month narrative, mm. and, and to look at how events from one month can have serious and significant repercussions, maybe three, two, three, four, five, even six months down the line. So I thought that was an interesting way to look at it. And once once I'd sat back and, and and wondered, you know, as I did with my first Beatles book, could it work? And then I thought, well, perhaps I, I began to get a wee bit more um, invested in it and, and a bit more attached, a bit more self-belief to it. And once I had worked out a structure, and, and, and looked at all the events that were taking place, then, yeah, I thought, well, let's go for it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did, and I'm sure lots of other people uh, are also glad that you did. Um, we're going to start, somewhat ironically, for a, a year, which the Beatles spend so much time apart pursuing different projects and, and doing different things. They spend the first 30 days of it together, locked in uh, various different rooms, trying to make an album, trying to put together a live show um the let it be sessions uh have been characterized as you know the worst sessions on earth cold dark days in january in england um we're starting to see a little bit of a change in that kind of viewpoint in the last few years obviously the forthcoming peter jackson film uh will maybe apparently um change that view even more um do you think that they were as bad-tempered uh, as the Beatles thought, or the, you know, uh, as we all thought initially? Yeah, it's interesting how you described that there has been lockdown. It is almost like a, 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 a pre-version, a sort of prehistoric version of a Beatle version of lockdown. Yeah, definitely. Um, they, they, they were, they were um, you know, incarcerated almost in studio at Twickenham. And, and the concept behind Let It Be, of course, was to was that they would be filmed making an album, and at the end of the at the end of that 
period of creativity that they would perform a concert, which they hadn't done since, what was it, August 1966 in San Francisco. Um, so that was the basic premise behind Let It Be. But they had really just come off the back of the grueling sessions for the White Album, which had been taking place over five months, the first double album of their career. So by the time they arrive at, I think it was January the 2nd, 1969, um, they are personally and professionally exhausted, with one exception, and that is Paul McCartney, because Paul McCartney had, and still has, this relentless work ethic that drove them forward, you know, week after week, month after month, year after year. But by the time we get to 1969, they are physically just exhausted. The White Album sessions have taken a terrible toll on their professional and their personal lives. Mm. Um, so from a musical point of view, they really should have maybe taken some time out because by the, by the time they, they all rock up at Twickenham, you know, the, the, you know, they don't have that. There's not an awful lot of songs left in the, in the vault, as it were. You know, they're almost having to start afresh. Uh, which is not not an, an unusual situation for Lennon and McCartney, especially because you know they were able to produce songs uh, at a rapid pace at that point. But you know there are lots of other things in the background. It's not the same. They've arrived at that particular juncture in their life with lots of, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, lots of uh, business difficulties in the background, lots of personal difficulties in the background, and lots of you know professional differences in the background. Mm. So I'm in no doubt that they arrive at this juncture and they're not, as a band, in a very healthy place. Um, George Harrison was really, you know, he, you know he, was, he was getting to that point where he no longer wanted to be a Beatle. John Lennon uh, had other, other career options to look at. He, he had other interests. Ringo would just go along with the majority view, really. Mm. Um, but it's interesting that you you talk about Peter Jackson's film because anybody who's seen Let It Be, the, the film that was made at the time, mm. it's dark, it's mm. very austere, um, it captures them in a moment. And you know what they say, Joe? The camera doesn't lie. <laughs> That's it captures true. Them, it captures them in a very dark place. You know, it's it's infamous for its notorious... Uh, confrontation between John Lennon and George Harrison, you know, over a guitar part. George, George, by this time, you know, he's not, you know, John and Paul tended to look down on him because they'd known him ever since he was a youngster. Uh, but George is no longer an economy class Beatle by this point. George, so, you know, he's he's a, a growing musician in his own right. He's a very credible musician in his own right. He's written some great songs. While my guitar gently weep, I, weeps, I think is is the one Beatle track, which is a George song, is the one track which I think actually gets better with age. Mm. It's just one of those great songs. Mm. So you know, George George is the dark horse coming up in the inside rail. <laughs> and um, with regard to the Peter Jackson film, it will be interesting, Joe. There's no doubt about that. Mm. I love Peter Jackson. Mm. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. In fact, if you can see in the background, you see my Lego Baradour in the background there and, and I have a, I have a, a sort of series of oil paintings here of, of the cast uh, and I know Billy Boyd because he comes from Glasgow um, so yeah but I always say that while it will be interesting and there are 400 hours of unseen footage 
which is incredible. Mm. But I always say this, Joe, you cannot reheat a souffle. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because it is what it is. Mm. You can't, you know, there will be a certain element of revisionism. Mm. And I'm looking forward to seeing it. Mm. But I, think, I think people should temper their anticipation um, with the reality. And the reality is that as a band, they really were not in a they were not in great shape mm. professionally. Mm. And, you know, no amount of revisionism, no amount of cinematic revisionism, it will change that. Yeah. It is what it is. They were, this was a band on life support, but nobody wanted to be the one who's going to pull the plug. I get that 100%. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm sure that Peter Jackson will shine a light into the darkest corners mm. of this footage and produce a, a, a film which is almost deferential and reverential because he's a huge fan, huge mm. fan. Mm. I mean, the soundtrack for Lord of the Rings was done at uh, Abbey Road. One of the engineers from Abbey Road, John Calander, mm. worked on the soundtrack for Lord of the Rings. Um, and he, he's got some fascinating stories that he told me. I've forgotten about John, actually. And um, so, yeah, I will be interested to see it. But, you know, th but having said that, Joe, out of all the chaos and the misery of those sessions, which John Lennon did, as you rightly say, he characterised them as the most miserable sessions on earth. Mm. Now, he was there. Yeah. <laughs> he was there. And, and I'm quite sure that if John was here, you know, you know, John had, um, John, John's honesty was very close to masochism. And, and I'm quite sure that, I mean, I've seen the comments from John, uh, from George, sorry, from Ringo and Paul mm. talking it up and saying it's going to be great. Well, they would say that. Mm. They, of course they would. Yeah. And I'm sure that they will look at, they will see things in a different light. But you can't escape that what went down went down, you know. But having said that, Joe, out of all that, out of all that negativity, still came some really fantastic stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, such, uh, uh, still came the rooftop, you know, right at the end of that particular month. They somehow, despite all the trials and tribulations, they get it together, they go up there, and you can, you know, you can see how much they're enjoying it. Just, you know, just for that half an hour, whatever it is that they're up there, they're having, they're having a fantastic time, you know, and the audio that we know about after they come off of the roof, they sound excited, you know, they're chatting to each other. So despite all that, that, that month of, as you say, you know, of them somehow struggling through and, you know, John's, you know, contributions are pretty light songwriting wise throughout that yeah. month. Yeah. There's not, there's not a whole lot that he brings to the table. Um, but somehow they managed to, to pull the roof out of the, out of the hat. Um, what I was going to ask was, do you think that, that month that they spent together there, how much do you think that affected the rest of the year? Do, do you think that that, you know, that, that changed the, the route that the year would take? Well, I, cer I certainly think it created an atmosphere and, and, and a certain amount of division and a certain wedge between Lennon and McCartney, um, which probably set the scene for the rest of the year. You know what it's like, you know, if you have a fallout with somebody, it, it's hard sometimes to prevent, you know, to not walk in eggshells. And we're talking here about very powerful personalities um, between, certainly between John Lennon, Paul McCartney and George Harrison. Um, 
So, you know, it, it, it did create, I think, a certain schism. And, you know, by doing so, then the feeling, it's almost like a domino effect, Joe, you know, that what happened in January 69 did, you know, cascade throughout the rest of the year up to a point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's always, I mean, Paul McCartney was the, the band's cheerleader-in-chief and he's always trying to draw them back into a, a tight circle, as it were. But I think a lot of damage was done um, in, 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 in the initial period in January. And they were able to pull themselves back from the brink. As I said, nobody wanted to be the one to say, nobody want, wanted to be the one to end the party. Um, but there's no doubt in my mind that it set the scene for the rest of the year, which I don't want people to think uh, is a gloomy, <laughs> is, a, is a gloomy 12 months because it's not. There's an awful lot of light and shade in there. Mm. Um, but maybe they just got off to a bad start, um, you know, because to a degree they weren't able to to pull things back. But I think you can see from that period, Joe, that they're beginning to shear off in different directions. You know, these are young guys that, who are still, you know, they're still in their 20s. People forget about this. They're still in their 20s and they had been mushroom grown inside a beetle hothouse for, from a UK perspective, seven years in terms of being on this roller coaster of fame, 10 years as a functioning band. So it's only natural that people's lives shear off in different directions. But there are elements that you cannot ignore. It's an ineluctable truth that Yoko's presence created a problem. John's heroin dabbling, Mm -hmm. (laughs) want of a better phrase, to be polite, created a problem. Um, You know, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but the business, uh, the the influence of Alan Klein Mm -hmm. uh, created a huge problem. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it's a bit like a Venn diagram. You have a Venn diagram, and in the middle of this Venn diagram, you've got these four guys. But shooting off into the into the distance are all these other Venn diagrams, all these other diagrams, which includes business difficulties, musical differences, you know, personal relationship differences. So there's a whole lot of thing in the, going on in the in the background here, and in the middle of this perfect storm, you have these four guys who really are trying to live their lives as they see it. Mm. It just so happens that their lives uh, are, you know, everything they say is amplified within this uh, echo chamber, in a sense, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. it did make, you know, the, it, it set the template for the year and, and, and it was hard, in a sense, to restore some stability for the rest of the year. So you mentioned uh, him just then. I was going to go on to Alan Klein next. Um, the Beatles, obviously, Brian Epstein had died uh, August Bank Holiday in 1967. Um, so the Beatles had, had gone, you know, almost 18 months without a manager. What, what led them, do you think, to start the process of looking for a manager? And where did Klein come from? Was he someone that was around before? Obviously, we know Robert Stigwood was kind of around, I think, um, uh, post-Brian, kind of sniffing around. But how did, how, did, how did Klein kind of get into the Beatles' orbit? Yeah, to bring some context to that, Joe, you're right enough, when Brian Epstein died, they really became a bit of a rudderless ship. I mean, Brian has been much criticised over the years with some justification about his 
business naivety, but he was able to draw all these strands together and keep the ship on an even keel. The problem was that when he left, there was this enormous hole uh, in their in their you know in their ability to manage their business affairs. So of course they set up Apple, and I think perhaps that they they, they thought they were untouchable. That egos slightly ran away with each other, and they thought that they could be men in suits. When in fact these guys are four musicians. We have a guitar player, a rhythm guitar player, a bassist, and a drummer. And we're not talking, you know, to put an analogy on it, we're not talking Steve Jobs here, you know, from another Apple. Um, <laughs> um, so you know, the, you know, they thought they could, they thought they could play businessmen by setting up Apple eyes in their own words, a sort of Western communism. But their naivety really is, in a sense, you know, looking back and things is quite staggering. Mm. So they needed somebody to come in and manage their affairs. Otherwise, this vast beetle fortune is going to disappear over the horizon. I mean, the White Album made a lot of money, but they were they were they were hemorrhaging money because they were, you know, additioning lots of other bands that had no chance of making it in, in any industry. So Alan Klein to bring you know to, to try and you know draw the draw the narrative here. Uh, Alan Klein was the manager of the Rolling Stones, and his avowed ambition was that he wanted to be the manager of the Beatles. Uh, Robert Stigwood was an associate of Brian at the time, but none of the Beatles liked him. You know, they they they, they didn't really trust him. Uh, so he was, uh, you know, he did make some overtures, but they were never really reciprocated. So Alan Klein was uh, a New York accountant, uh, and he was he's the most incongruous manager in rock and roll history because if you see this guy, you know, he wears a polo neck sweater. Um, he smokes a pipe, um, and and he swears like a trooper, right? And and he read an interview in which John Lennon said, John Lennon gave this interview and and said that uh, if the Beatles carried on in a business sense the way they were, and this is January '69, mm. they would be broke in six months. He said he was down to his last fifty grand. You know, uh, John had a, a talent for hyperbole. But when the words, when these words appeared in print with all these garish headlines, you know, Beatles in bankruptcy shock, um, sitting across in his Manhattan office in New York was Alan Klein, and he rubbed his pudgy hands with glee, Joe, because <laughs> at that point he says one word, and it is this, gotcha, because he thought that was his entree, if you like, into the Beatles world. So he quickly made contact with the guys at Apple. I think the intermediary was the press officer, Derek Taylor, who set up a meeting between Alan Klein and John Lennon, and they clicked. Um, for a start, they both lost their mothers very young. Um, you know, Klein gave this impression of being a bit of an underdog, um, you know, street smart, a hustler, and all these things appealed to Lennon. John, John for all I love him, and I do, <laughs> um, it was an easy mark for braggadocio, you know, false promises, you know, you know, Alan Klein's mantra was F you money. And that appealed to John because he thinks he doesn't want to end up like the actor Mickey Rooney doing a residency in Vegas, having to do adverts to, you know, earn a, turn a coin as it were. Mm. So Alan Klein, um, you know, made a great pitch to Lennon. 
and said, I'll come in and manage your affairs. I will make you untold millions. Uh, you know, I will do that. I, I will get you Northern Songs, your publishing company. I will buy NEMS, which was Brian Epstein's company, which is sort of vehicle for all their business. And um, and I will I will make Apple a very profitable company. So there were all these promises that he made. And Lennon, I get it, you know, he was very, you know, he was sold. And in those days, it didn't take much to convince George. And Ringo, by and large, would side with John. So all of a sudden, you've got three guys here who like the cut of Alan Klein's jib. And I, I get that. I see why. Um, but Paul McCartney loathed Alan Klein from the start. His instinct said that this guy was a hustler and a crook, a bit of a snake oil salesman. And McCartney's instincts told him not to touch Klein with a barge pole. Instead, he really wanted he really wanted the band to consider, just consider this, guys, you know. Um, he wanted the band to consider his future in-laws, which is John and Lee Eastman, who are Linda's, pa Linda's, parent, Linda's dad and her brother. And these guys were super smart um, uh, New York lawyers. They were entertainer, entertainment lawyers, and they're steeped in the entertainment industry. But they could not have been more different from Alan Klein if you had tried, you know, the reek of Park Avenue privilege. They, they have all this social cachet, you know, they know William de Kooning, you know, Picasso's hanging in the hall. They couldn't be, they couldn't be more different than, than Klein if you tried. And so right away, Joe, you've got this, in the blue corner, we have John Lennon, George Harrison, Ringo Starr and Alan Klein. And in the red corner, I should have maybe made the colours the other way around, but uh, to, to go with American politics. But in the red corner, we have Paul McCartney, John Eastman and Lee Eastman. And, you know, we can't forget the girlfriends either because they do play a part. Mm. Um, so right away, so at that point, from a business sense, you have a terrible, terrible dichotomy. So do you think Paul's attitude to Klein was purely because he wanted to go with, to kind of keep it in the family? Or do you think there was something about Klein that Paul just didn't like, connect to? Had he heard stuff? It wasn't, um, obviously, you mentioned the Stones earlier. Um, there's a piece in the book where you talk about Jagger kind of coming down. I think Paul was hoping for some more support from Mick Jagger, wasn't he, in this, which didn't really happen. Well, Jagger, Jagger phoned Lennon and said, don't touch, don't, at that point, the Stones were desperate to get shot of him. You know, there were a lot of problems over royalties. There, was, there were allegations about skimming off the top. And the Stones, really, by this point, Mick and Keith had seen through Klein and wanted nothing more to do with him. So Jagger did get in touch with Lennon, who they were quite friendly, mm. and said, don't touch him with a barge pole. Lennon ignored it. And then McCartney obviously had heard the same vibes and invited Mick to a meeting. So Mick attends the meeting and he thinks he's going along to talk to all four Beatles to more or less repeat what he said to Lennon. You know, I don't trust this guy. We've had a lot of problems. If you want to go with him, that's down to you. But I would suggest that you avoid him like the proverbial plague. But when he arrived at the meeting at Apple, Unfortunately for Mick, sitting alongside all four Beatles was Alan Klein. 
And if you listened in the background, you hear a lot of the sound of bo- the sound of bottles crashing to the floor, mm. and Mick's bottle went. Mm. And when McCartney asked him outright, um, he didn't deliver the damning verdict that he was hoping for, and and rather sheepishly left the beat- left the meeting early. So it didn't achieve anything. Um, but McCartney, it, it, it was just an instinctive thing, Joe. I don't think necessarily that it was about the family. I think it was just a happy accident okay. that Linda's, Linda's family were steeped in a showbiz tradition and were very successful. And there was, no, there was no impropriety attached to them, no suspicion, no allegations. I mean, Klein had, Klein had set up various companies in America that were being investigated by the FBI for their propriety. So, but, you know, the Eastmans were squeaky clean, you know, and McCartney was the most socially class conscious of the Beatles. So there's an element of that he liked the lifestyle and the social cachet of it all. I don't necessarily think it was about family, but it very soon became all about family. Okay, uh, keeping with the kind of business side of this, um, Dick James, uh, who's obviously a man that was involved with the Beatles from the very early early part of their career um was primarily the publisher of john and paul's songs um he decides uh in 1969 to sell his shares um in in northern songs what do you think led him to that decision and why was that such an important thing for the whole year and and how did that affect kind of the beatles as a group and john and paul in particular yeah brilliant question um, Dick James, as you say, was in at the ground floor in 1963 when the elevator was just taking off. Uh, and he set up um, Northern Songs, which in turn became Lennon McCartney's songwriting, song publishing company. Uh, very important to them because it was a, it provided a, a very lucrative financial stream. Um, Dick James owned 51% of the company. And the rest of it was split up between Paul McCartney, John Lennon, Brian Epstein, I think, had had a small shareholding. I think George and Ringo also had a small shareholding, which they eventually you know, sold. But by 1969, um, the, the Beatles are no longer the happy mop tops, the cheeky chappies that Dick James encountered in 1969. They, are, they have been through the mop top stage. They have been through the... The, the stage of being hippie avatars of 1967 and 68. Uh, they're now very, there's, there's a certain cynicism has crept into the Beatles because just because of, you know, you know what they say about life getting in the way of you're making other plans. Mm-hmm. It's just the way things, had, how, how the, their careers had rolled. But they had very little time for, for him. You know, he was very much old school. Uh, you know, he, you know, he, there was a huge generational gap which had just grown over time. So they no longer they no longer gave a monkeys about Uncle Uncle Dick, and um, and frankly Uncle Dick really didn't really give much of a monkeys about them. He's sitting on Joe. He's sitting on a gold mine. Fifty one percent of Northern Songs, the most lucrative song catalogue in rock and roll history at that point. There are something like at that point two hundred and seventy odd songs in it. And, and these songs will earn money in perpetuity, right? I mean, it's a never-ending never tap. 
but he wants to sell because he no longer likes the Beatles. That's the fundamental. He doesn't like them as people. When he used to turn up, when when they were younger, he would turn up at the studio and be invited in as a as a friend and ally. But by 1969, they didn't want anything to do with them, and they were rude to him. They were cheeky. He, you know, he was asked to leave in a couple of sessions. Lennon would mutter things beneath his breath. So at that point, Dick James says, I'm out. So it then triggered a monumental battle for control of Northern songs, just one of the many battles that are taking place in the margins of certainly the lives of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And it's an important battle because it was probably the last time, despite all the differences that they had between each other, Lennon and McCartney really had to you know, put their tanks on the same lawn because they had to unite to fight this because obviously there would be a takeover bid for Northern Songs. And the danger was that if they could not buy enough shares between them to get over that 51% threshold, then they would lose control of their company. And these songs would then fall into the hands of you know, big city fat cats, which would have been anathema to Paul and John. And these guys would then have a controlling interest in how these songs are used. You know, you can use them for anything. You know, Good Morning can be used to sell Rice Krispies, for example, or, you know, sell sneakers, anything you like. So it, his Dick James' decision to sell the shares sparked what became a battle royale throughout the summer of 1969 and into the autumn. And, you know, pitched front and centre of that battle is Alan Klein, who, again, has made this promise to John and Paul, don't worry, guys, your company's safe with me. We can get it. I'll get it for nothing, you know. I mean, the usual garbage, you know. Um, but it did trigger off this monumental shares battle. Um, and, 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 you know, it was the first, it moved the Beatles from the front page of the Daily Mirror to the front page of the Financial Times because it was such a big deal, really, you know. So this battle raged on for about the best part of four or five months where all these city institutions are looking at ways to try and gain that magic 51% threshold. Um, and to, you know, to, to cut a long story short, the songs, the battle was eventually concluded. And the guy who um, uh, won the battle was um, the man who, who um, was in charge of ATV music at the time, Sir Lou Grade. He was, a pin, he was very much a pillar of the entertainment establishment in Britain. And he managed to buy up enough shares to earn him a controlling stake in Northern Songs. And the Beatles were then forced to sell their own shareholding in the company. Uh, and for Lennon McCartney, for Lennon especially, it was an absolutely horrific moment. Uh, because you lose control of your songs, which are in effect from their point of view, it's like giving up your children for adoption. And, and it's a horrific moment for them. Traumatic. Moving slightly away from 1969, but am I right in saying that from that day to this, Paul McCartney still doesn't own those copyrights, does he? Well, I think after a certain period of time, um, Joe, under US copyright laws, some of the songs do begin to revert to the original songwriter. Now, I could be wrong in that because it is an absolutely complicated 
mine, minefield. It really is. I mean, we all know the story how, you know, down through the decades, this has become the biggest game of corporate pass the parcel in history. Hmm. And, and of course, we all know how the songs event, the copyrights eventually ended up with Michael Jackson. They ended up with Sony. You know, somebody did ask me the other day who owns them now. I haven't a clue. I can confirm it's not me. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> Otherwise, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. But um, I don't know quite who owns it now. But I think that, you know, there was a deal done recently where Paul McCartney, I think, has done some kind of clandestine deal with uh, Sony to get some of the copyrights back. But obviously attached to that is some kind of confidential element to it. And he's not allowed to talk about it and he won't talk about it. But, you know, he had his chances. McCartney had his chances in the in the, in the 80s along with Yoko Ono. Mm. And they balked at the, the asking price. And nowadays, I think I think that catalogue is worth upwards of more than half a, half a, half a billion, you know. So it's a fascinating it's a fascinating element or it's a fascinating piece of the jigsaw and it sounds really dry when you talk about it in a business sense, but you know, it's part of the narrative and, and it's an important part. Moving away from business now, um, one of the one of the well two kind of combined as one seminal events of nineteen sixty nine were the beddings. Um, which John and Yoko uh, gave one, obviously in Amsterdam, kind of a dry run, maybe in Amsterdam, and then the full Monty in uh, in Canada. Um, Thank goodness it wasn't the full Monty. <laughs> definitely, yeah. Although two virgins was was quite enough, I think, for for that kind of thing. Um, in in the book, you describe the fact that these were events that anyone could come, anyone could turn up. The security in particular in Amsterdam was pretty patchy if existing at all. Um, anyone could come and talk to John and Yoko. And it struck me that it's a little bit of a, a preemptor to social media where you've got this, you know, two, two of the most famous people in the world. Um, you can talk to them, you can go up to them and you can, you can make your point. You can approach them. Obviously there was an element of um, invited guests, particularly uh, in, in Canada, um, do you think, obviously, you know, this is sort of the first thing that you see John and Yoko do on their own. Um, this is very much not a Beatle project. Um, so, you know, only a few months after Let It Be, um, the Twickenham sessions and the Savile Row sessions. Um, what, what effect do you think, first of all, what effect do you think, you know, this had on the John and Yoko brand, which we're still hearing about today? Um, and... What do you think the other Beatles' reaction was to this? Do you think this was something that they saw positively or was this typical John? Or Yeah, it was absolutely typical John if we deal with that point first, you know. I mean, John was a maverick um, and, um, you know, uh, very much very much his own man. I think the others at that time just looked upon it as a bit of... Uh, I mean, very much influenced by Yoko, the, the bed-in, you know, that kind of avant-garde sensibility and sensitivity attached to it. I think that uh, by that time, the rest of the guys just thought, I mean, they, they may well have thought, and I think, I think uh, you know, I think some quote was that everybody thinks he, he's off his rocker, but Ringo just said, it's just John being John. Um, it's slightly incongruous in the sense that, you know, you have this image of John Lennon as a, a hard-nosed rocker, quite an earnest guy, really, you know. Um, and, and these, these uh, the Beddins moved his profile to 
a slightly different and more eccentric level. Um, I don't think the other guys really bothered about it too much. I don't think they cared too much. I mean, I suppose it did bring some publicity. It wasn't like the Two Virgins album, which I think they thought was just bizarre in, in, in the extreme. But this was a harmless, this was a harmless piece of political, uh, uh, political opportunism, if, if you like. You know, it, it was a great stunt. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine nowadays? You know, if um, you know two people of that, and they were probably it probably made them the most famous people in the world. I mean, even today we talk about John and Yoko and, and, and the idea of the bed-ins aren't far from people's minds. Uh, but, you know, it was harmless buffoonery, you know. I mean, you know, the thing was that because the first one was held in Amsterdam, the most permissive at that time city in the world, and when uh, when they announced that seven days after, the, after their wedding that in Gibraltar that they were going to spend a week in bed for peace, I think that uh, the press all thought, "Whoa, what, what will we see here?" You know, um, you know, this is uh, long before last tango in Paris. Thank you very much, and um, and they're all they're all stupid enough to to line up outside the hotel bedroom and and think that they're going to see something, you know, something a bit lewd and libidinous, uh, which was never the case. You know, when they walk in the bedroom, they see two people in neatly pressed pajamas holding flowers. You know. And it worked, you know, um, but as regards to the security, yeah, by and large, anybody could walk in and there would have been a certain amount of filter in both the Amsterdam bedroom, bed-in and the one in Montreal a few months later. Um, but, you know, it created enormous, uh, enormous publicity for them and it was harmless, you know, uh, and it did raise his profile and, and, and helped him to form um, this characterization as a political activist. At that time, you know, he, most people laughed at it, but they laughed at it and put it in the papers. So mission accomplished as far as he's concerned. Um, but, you know, I think behind behind the, the caricatures, I think there was a serious message that chimed very much with the times. This is 1969, Joe, where, you know, Soviet Union tanks had already rolled into Czechoslovakia. Uh, you know, you've got an, an incredible furore among young people over the Vietnam War, seeing American troops being brought back home in body bags. You've got American magazines showing pictures of, you know, kids fleeing villages covered in napalm. Um, and, and of course, student riots in Berkeley in America and California and in Paris. So th these are serious times which, were, which called for a serious intervention and John Lennon at that point was able to use his fame and celebrity for what he thought was a positive influence. And, and you know, um, but it was interesting. I mean, the, the one in Montreal is just chaos, you know. It, it's famously where Give Peace a Chance was recorded inside the hotel room. And, you know, it, it, it's madness. It's a, it's, a, it's a circus, you know. I mean, in, in the one in the hotel in the... In, in, in Montreal, you know, you've got <laughs> you've got these Hare Krishna monks walking around with their beats and chanting, and you've got the Smothers Brothers, two American comedians. You've got Allen Ginsberg, a sort of rock and roll poet, um, and and it's crazy. And you've got um, a, a slightly out of place figure of Petula Clark, um, who's who's not someone that you know now is obviously remembered as a crazy sixties you know, flower power type figure. 
Yeah, crazy sexy chick, Patricia Clark, perhaps not. No, it's the, the story is interesting because she had been playing a concert in Montreal that on, on, on one of these nights when the bedding was taking place. And she was playing, you know, before a mixed audience of French-speaking nationals and English-speaking nationals. And I think she tried to speak in French and it didn't go down very well. And I think she tried to speak in English, but it didn't go down very well. So she came away from that particular concert just wanting a shoulder to cry on. And she knew Lennon was in town and she just walked into the room and, and John Lennon was really good to you, you know, two people from different musical universes in a sense. But um, Lennon was very good. You know, he said, come on in, have a drink, have a glass of wine, don't worry about it. And it just so happened that her visit coincided with them recording the track for, you know, uh, Give Peace a Chance. And Petula has dined out for many, many a year on uh, the fact that she was in the backing chorus for Give Peace a Chance. She's one of this crazy circus of people. Um, but I spoke to a number of people, uh, one person in particular about recording that track. And, and he, you know, I, I tried to speak to as many people as possible, Joe, to try and bring some credibility and authenticity to it so that you're not just, you know, the problem with the Beatles, Joe, is that stories become legends and legends become myths. So you had to try and talk to people as best you could, those that are still here, to try and find out what really happened. Um, and the story of Petula Clark and Give Peace a Chance, and I don't want to bust Petula's bubble. If Petula thinks she's on Give Peace a Chance, then I'm quite happy to believe her. But I was told a story by somebody else about a fascinating story about how that track was recorded. Um, and it's another good example, I think, of talking to people and you know, putting the stories in the book. And, and, and it's an example of how even after all these years, Joel, there are still great stories about the Beatles that can be teased out of people if you're prepared to put in the heavy lifting and go to the source. And the story about Give Peace a Chance was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're very grateful that you that you teased all those stories out of people. Um, uh, going back to business side of things now, the 9th of May, um, a seismic day in the year, uh, the day that um, Olympic Studios in Barnes um, the Beatles meet with Alan Klein with an idea uh, of signing a, a small thing called a contract uh, with Alan Klein, um, which obviously um, Paul, as we've discussed previously, uh, was not keen to do in any shape or form. Um, he talks about it. I think there's an interview uh, that he gave where he describes this as the day there was a crack in the Liberty Bell. Um, how much do you think? Yeah. Yeah. How, how much do you think this day was this the point of no return? Do you think when he wouldn't sign this evening, and then obviously he storms off to do uh, the Steve Miller session, and there's all sorts of stories about you know how John and him come into blows and stuff, which you which you cover in in the book. Was this the point of no return? Do you think this day? Thank you. I think it was a line in the sand. I think this was the marginal line. Uh, this was the the point where. It was very hard. I mean, having said that, you know, this, this happened in early May. So, you know, they were, they were still able to bring it back because they obviously got back together again to do, to do Abbey Road. But at that time, I think that was, it took relations between John, George and Ringo in that corner and Paul and the other. I think it took relations to DEFCON 5 
I think that was really, you know, the point in the sand for it. it made things really difficult. Again, to, to try and, you know, what, what happened was that, you know, they, they did have a fudge over Klein and Eastman's. They agreed that Klein would look after some elements of the business and the Eastman's would, would look after, Klein would look after the finances and Eastman would look after the legal side of things. So it was a bit of a fudge. But by this time, by the time it gets to May, Lennon, Harrison and Starr actually think that Klein's been doing a good job. And to be fair, Joe, you know, to be a devil's advocate, he has been handed a poison chalice because they're losing so much money that he had to stem the hemorrhage. He had to stem the tide. Otherwise, I mean, he did, to an extent, do what he said he would do. He did what he was on the tin, that he would, you know, he would stop the money disappearing at a vast rate of knots. And the only way you can do that is to turn off the tap, made some unpopular decisions and, and uh, you know, had to get rid of staff. And, and it just, it didn't sit very well with McCartney's hippie ethos. He thought there was another way to do things. But because Klein had been doing it for a few months and Klein is sitting pouring poison into John's ear about the Eastmans, but he's also saying to John, look, you know, I've fulfilled my side of the bargain here. I really would like if you would put something down here in black and white to make my position a bit more, you know, you know, but confirm it a wee bit more, you know, mm -hmm. to make things, put things on a much more legal footing. Um, because at that point, I think he, he had been working for nothing. So he said, but, so at that point, when it comes to me, he says, look, I need, I need something black and white here. So the other three Beatles went to McCartney and said, look, he needs, he needs a contract. And McCartney would stall and stall and stall. And they said, they said to him, look, he needs this contract tonight because he needs to present it to his board for approval, which is utter garbage because in Alan Klein's company, there was no board. There was only Alan Klein and his wife, Betty. He didn't have to go to anybody for approval. He was just doing what Alan Klein does very well, which is to hustle, hustle and harass, put a bit of pressure on his clients. Um, and McCartney refused to do it. And in the Beatles, there was always this Beatle democracy, Joe, whereby if, you know, they usually went with the majority vote. And this was the only time, the only time in their careers where the, the majority vote did not hold sway and McCartney dug his heels in and refused to sign. And there was a terrible bust up, as you say, at Trident Studio, which ended with uh, the three of them calling Paul for everything. Uh, it must have been extremely painful. It never came to blows. I don't think McCartney and Lennon ever came to blows. But that was a terrible confrontation. McCartney was extremely upset by it. It's not inconceivable to say he was reduced to tears because this is his, these are his best friends. And they turned on him like a pack of wolves and, and ev eviscerated him. And it was painful and it was rancorous. And, and McCartney was then left in the studio on his own in the darkness. And who, who knocks on the door? But Steve Miller, who was at that point a young musician trying to make his way in the industry. And he was putting down tracks for, I think it was his second album, maybe his first. And, and you know, McCartney then just pours his heart out. Mm. He can afford to pour his heart out to Steve Miller because he doesn't really know him. Mm. He just wants somebody to, he just wants to vent. Mm. 
And Miller wanted to know whether he could use the studio time. And McCartney said, look, would you mind uh, Would you mind if I played in the session? So he played on a, a track called My Dark Hour, which is a really good track. And McCartney plays the drums. And for anybody who wants to listen to it, you should listen to the drums because there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of anger in these drums, Joe. The, the drums, the, the, you know, the jungle drums most definitely are beating. But it was, a, it was an unfortunate incident. Um, and, and it definitely wounded Paul, definitely wounded him. It's interesting because the narrative of John, that John put forward about how the other Beatles ganged up and attacked him with Yoko, that he brought Yoko into, you know, the, the Beatles um, party. Uh, but here's another example of the three of them ganging up on, on Paul. So, um, and something which wasn't as well known at the time, you know, this wasn't something that was in the papers straight away. This is something that's come out over time. So I think the Beatles were um, quite, quite capable of um, picking out one particular Beatle and, and going from, and this was a good example where Paul bore the brunt of the other three, I think. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Because as I say, for months, for weeks now, Klein's been pouring poison into, uh, into, into McCartney's ear. But you know, there are, there are other things taking place in the background. Paul had secretly um, been buying up shares in Northern Songs prior to all going in sale, I should say. Um, and there was a gentleman's agreement between John and Paul when they set up Northern Songs that they would maintain an equal shareholding. And, and Klein discovered this very early on when he did an audit of the books. But crafty son of a bitch that he is, he, he, he kept that intelligence to himself and waited until the right moment in one of those interminable business meetings where, of course, he just happened, just happened to mention, oh, oh, by the way, Paul, I understand that you've been, and when Lennon heard that, he was apoplectic. So, you know, there's a lot of tension here. There's a lot of ill feeling. And that meeting that you referred to May the 9th, it all just poured out. But McCartney, the laddie was not for turning. And, and he's, you know, he dug his heels in. I'm quite sure Paul McCartney can be very dogmatic when he wanted to be. And he never, he never, ever signed with Klein. He never, ever put pen to paper uh, endorsing Klein as, his, as, his, as the manager of the Beatles in any shape or form. And I think that for students of the band, uh, history eventually proved Paul McCartney's instincts right. I couldn't agree more. Um Changing tact a little bit now, I wanted to talk a little bit about John's uh, jaunt to Liverpool and then to Scotland. He, yeah. um, so he decides to, how I read it, a little bit from the book and a little bit just from kind of ob observing, he decides to, he's, all this chaos is, is going on and obviously he's effect, as affected by the Beatles split as Paul, even if he was less keen to kind of display that. So he decides to do a trip with Yoko um, and Julian and Yoko's daughter, Kyoko. And he goes back to childhood haunts, doesn't he? He goes back to familiar surroundings. Yeah. Liverpool, Liverpool obviously is, is his home and Scotland is where he spent many childhood summers. He, do you read that the same? Do you, what was behind this decision to go to Liverpool and then Scotland? Well, two things, Joe. I think, first of all, there was a sense of retreat because this trip to Scotland took place after the two beddings where, you know, there's an enormous spike in public attention for John Lennon. 
And I think he really just wanted to pull in the pull in the drawbridge slightly and you know take a few steps back and and he was trying to build bridges with Julian Lennon, his, his son from his first marriage. His marriage had split up. He was divorced. Yoko was on the scene. She also has a child from a previous marriage, Kyoko. So John suddenly hatched this idea that perhaps they could play happy families. And what better way to play happy families than to go on what was essentially a busman's holiday to, first of all, Liverpool to do the, to do the in-laws, and then to go as far north in Scotland as you can possibly get. Um, so he took, he set off in a car, um, I think it may have been a mini from Ascot to Liverpool. And John Lennon, Joe, was a horrific driver. He was as blind as a bat. Uh, he passed his driving test. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was either 65 or 66, but had hardly been behind the wheel of a car since because there's always an Apple flunky or a business flunky to drive from. Didn't really need to drive, you know. There's always somebody there to do it for him. So John, from the off, is a, is a, <laughs> he's a danger to himself and he's a danger to everybody else, you know. Drive my car? Well, not if John Lennon's behind the wheel, you know. Baby, I'd rather you didn't drive my car. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so John takes off for Liverpool with Yoko, and it's the first time that his Liverpool relations... I've seen her. All they have to go on is the fact that, you know, that he's now in tow with this very slightly peculiar Japanese-American avant-garde artist whose main claim to fame was filming people's rear ends and, of course, appearing in front of a, a record uh, full frontal naked with John Lennon. Uh, so they didn't get the warmest of receptions in Liverpool because, you know, these are very grounded working-class people, you know, and... and um, and, and also they liked John's first wife, Cynthia. She was a Liverpool lass, mm. you know, uh, very much a part of the Beatles family. And John really had, you know, punted her onto the sidelines. So he's met with an awful lot of antipathy. Um, and they went very warmly received by various aunts and uncles and cousins. So he spends maybe a day or so in Liverpool. And then he sets off for Edinburgh, where he has a cousin in Edinburgh called Stan Parks, and the two, the two guys were really close growing up in childhood. Um, and Stan's family, his mother and what became his stepfather, uh, owned a croft, Joe, in Durness. And Durness, for people who, if you can imagine the British, British Isles, Durness is as far north as you can get. And it's brilliant. It's absolutely a fantastic place. Bit of a, a one-street one town. But when John was growing up, you know, holidays in Durness were, were brilliant for him, you know, freedom from Liverpool's post-war industrial grime, and you've got all these fields, and it really freed up his imagination, and it has a very special place in his heart. So the idea was that they would then <laughs> they would then drive from Liverpool to Durness. They changed the car, I think one of the Apple flunkies or one of his chauffeurs changed the car from the Mini to and Austin Maxi, not an awful lot of difference. But they made, they finally did, you know, to cut the story short, they did finally make their way to Durness. Uh, but during their time there, um, John ignored the etiquette of driving in the Scottish Highlands, which is if you have a single track road, you have to make way for oncoming traffic. But his road skills were so poor 
that when he saw <laughs> on this particular day, I think they spent a few days up there. Um, but when he saw another car coming towards him, he panicked, and Lennon's car ended up in the ditch, and they ended up in you know, John, Yoko, Kyoko, and Julian ended up in hospital, uh, a remote Highland hospital, because he crashed the car. And it's one of the fascinating stories about the people that they met in hospital, the doctors, the nurses, and all of a sudden, this media circus is pitched outside this tiny hospital's lawn, you know. Um, but it's just another example of the madness of John and Yoko's lives at that time. So is that still there, that hospital? Do you know? Is yeah. It still... Right, okay, okay. Yeah, I've been, I've been inside the hospital, and right. uh, they have a brilliant picture, Joe, uh, in the entrance hall of the day that the Lennons left, with the entire staff lined up behind them. Oh, wow. And the two, the two of them waving. Um, you know, no, nobody, unless you go to the hospital, you'll never see it. Um, but, you know, it was just another another crazy moment in the lives, in the ballad of John and Yoko. I thought something in your book, which which is really interesting about him in hospital, was one of the phone calls that comes through to check on him, despite everything, is from Paul McCartney. Uh, yeah, Paul, Paul made, I mean, you know, if you imagine the scenario, it's completely different than it is today, you know. There are no mobile phones, there is no internet, there is no social media. In those days, if you wanted to phone, you had to phone the office switch, uh, the hospital switchboard, and they were even reluctant to let you speak to the patient. They would give you what was called a condition report. So the woman in question happened to be on duty that night was a nurse called Joyce Everett. And you can imagine yourself, you know, if you, if you happen to be the duty nurse and the phone goes and picks up the phone and the other person on the phone says, hello, I'm Paul McCartney. I'm just phoning to check on my good friend, John. And she was taken aback because she was a Beatles fan and a Paul fan. But of course, her professionalism kicked in and, you know, but she never put him through and, and he didn't ask to be put through. But again, it's a, a good example of somebody telling a story that, you know, hadn't been told before. And, you know, there's a few more, there's a bit more to it than just saying to Paul, thank you and good night. Um, but it was another another element. It, it kind of humanises them in a sense. And it does speak to the fact that the bonds between John and Paul, despite, despite everything. Mm. I mean, I always say this, Joe, that if you're a fan of the Beatles, most fans would have liked them to end up, to have ended up the way they began, which is four guys who were, who were really tight and who, and who really loved each other. I think they were a, a genuine band of brothers. We'll never see anything like them again. Mm. We'll never see four guys who were as tight. And I think they genuinely loved each other. Mm. And that's an example of, you know, despite what was happening in the background, you know, Paul still cared for John. And see at some kind of molecular level, mm. John never stopped loving Paul. I'm mm. convinced of that, despite everything that happened. And this is a good example of two guys just checking on checking up on each other. Yes, it's a lovely little little, just a very small nugget which you've uncovered, which I think is fantastic. Um, we can't talk about 969 without talking about Abbey Road, um, the album itself. Obviously, it's uh, recently been we've been lucky enough to have this beautiful box set which came out last year, so we we know a little bit more about it now than than we ever have. And uh, you know, I think it got to number one in the UK when it was reissued. So there's it's still an album that's beloved by. All, all, all different types of Beatle fans. Um, as usual, it, am I right in saying it's Paul that pushes for it, that, that starts the, the gears in motion? Uh, do you think he was doing this... 
you think the effort for this album was to try to save the Beatles, or do you think it was an attempt by him to make sure that the Swan Song was was its best? Obviously, the Let It Be sessions were unloved by this point. Do you think it was an attempt to just make sure that the Beatles' image was was perfect? Yeah, it's an attempt to preserve the myth, you know, and it's a it's a salvage job. I mean, Let It Be by by the time they, they regroup at Abbey Road to do um, Abbey to do Abbey Road. Um, the Let It Be tapes are languishing, gathering dust in the Apple basement, in the Apple studio basement. And nobody knows whether they're ever going to see the light of day. I mean, you've got songs like Let It Be, Long and Winding Road, Two of Us, I've Got a Feeling, you know, Don't Let Me Down, uh, across the, a, a, a redone version of Across the Universe. And these are iconic songs in themselves. And they're all, I mean, they, they may never see the light of day. That's what he's thinking, you know, there was such a bad attitude to it. So I think he really saw Let It uh, Abbey Road as, come on guys, let's put down the boxing gloves and see if we can get back, for want of a better phrase, um, as a functioning band and see if we can create that alchemy one more time. So, you know, the, the rest of them were, you know, agreed to buy into it. Lennon agreed to buy into it with some reservations. George agreed to buy into it with some reservations, Ringo would just go along for the ride. Um, Abbey Road is a magnificent record by anybody's stretch. You, you talked about it last year. I think it was Britain's most uh, bought vinyl record, mm. as well as as well as all the other platforms that you can now buy it on. Um, and that, that should say something about the about the album's astonishing durability, um, and and also it says something, Joe, about the Beatles cross-generational appeal. Mm. I mean, 50 years down the line, that shouldn't really happen. You know, th these albums should fade, you know, fade gently into the mists of time, but they don't. Uh, and the Beatles are, are still rock music's greatest legacy band and greatest influences. And Abbey Road's a good example of that. It's a great album. And, and, and the last love letter to the world, and what a way to bow out. Um, with some great songs on it, although with with some I have some reservations about one or two songs, but I'll come on to that. Um, but it does say something about them as individuals and as a group that they were able to set aside the differences. And I think Abbey Road was blocked for six weeks from July to early August to enable them to say, "Can we? Can we still do this?" You know. Um, and it's interesting to note that. You know, Lennon was on board with certain amount of conditions attached. You know, he wanted all his songs on one side and all McCartney's songs on the other side. That was never going to fly, right? Um, but it does speak to some of the, the musical differences that are already, you know, between the cracks, between the grooves of the album, if you like, that are now in place. Now, it's interesting to know Abbey Road for, for a number of reasons. I mentioned earlier on about George Harrison being the dark horse coming up in the inside rail. When we think about Abbey Road nowadays, two of the seminal tracks on the album are, of course, Something and Here Comes the Sun, which are George songs. And it just shows how he had really blossomed as a major songwriter in his own, in his own right. But then he's no longer this economy-sized Beatle that John and Paul, you know, it means something... You know, there are very, some very early versions of something. And it's a shame because they're not into it, you know. And he had to really push and pull 
to try and convince them that this was a song. And a bit like he got clapped in and to do While My Guitar Gently Weeps because John and Paul just didn't, didn't do enough to make it happen. And it's interesting to note that if you ask people nowadays, if you ask them what's the most popular Beatles song in Spotify, and they would, they would give you any number of songs, probably Lennon McCartney songs, but the most popular Beatles song in Spotify, and I can see why you're nodding your head, as a scholar and a gentleman, is that it's Here Comes the Sun. Which is, and I'm sure that if John is watching from uh, you know, some, some other place, that would bring a, a, a wry smile even to his cynical features. Um, but I have a theory, Joe, and the theory is this, that I, much as I love Abbey Road, and the medley is just magnificent. Mm. You know, it's, it's just iconic. Mm. Come together, iconic tracks. I want She So Heavy, iconic tracks. But I, I for one, could live without Maxwell Silverhammer. I could. Um, it's not, I don't think it's a great track, it's flawed, but that's just my opinion, who am I? But I think if John and Paul had been able to pack their egos slightly more, then, then there may have been room in that album for maybe one, maybe even two more George Harrison songs that were currently being worked on but didn't make the final cut. But they were good enough to make the final cut for All Things Must Pass. Mm. One of the songs, of course, is All Things Must Pass. Mm which is a great track mm. and could have been a great Beatles track. Mm. But for anybody who looks at the lyrics, I can see why, <laughs> you know, why, um, you know, why it didn't make it. And there's a, there's a few other ones as well that, you know, you can see what they tell you where George's, where George's mind is at that moment. And his mind is not in the Beatles. And unfortunately the lyrics of some of these songs reflect that, but wouldn't it have been interesting. Had one or two of them made it. I mean, for me, the, just as, again, a very personal observation is Oh Darling, which I think is a great track. Um, but if, if there's ever a song that's crying out for a Lennon and McCartney kind of duet, you know, they, John's voice would have been fantastic alongside Paul's rock. A bit like on Hey Bulldog, where they do some back and forth. And Absolutely. I think, hey, um, oh, hey, I think Oh Darling was a little bit of a, a missed a missed opportunity, maybe. Um, but yeah, Maxwell Silver Hammer, I'm not sure many people's favourite Beatles song. But... No, you know. I mean, it's interesting that you know, you, you, you talk about Oh Darling, because Lennon always thought that he could sing it better. He thought it was more his type of... But at that point, because of the schism that had set in, then whoever writes it, sings it. And yeah, wouldn't that, wouldn't, there isn't, wouldn't that have been interesting had Lennon... Lennon might have brought a different, you know, a different sort of sensitivity to it, you know? But yeah, it's a very good example. I think also, I think, you know, if you look at Paul's help that he provides with Come Together, the, obviously the bass playing, but the backing vocals for Come Together lift that song. Come Together could have been a John Lennon solo song by that point. It could have appeared as a single. It could have been a cold turkey. It could have been an instant karma. The, if there's ever an example of how the other Beatles make their own individual work better, I think Come Together is a great example of that. I think Paul's so good on that track. Well, yeah, absolutely. The thing about Abbey Road is, uh, is Joe, is I think it, it shows them at a musical peak in terms of their own abilities with their own instruments. McCartney's bass playing on Abbey Road is off the grid. You know, if you listen to something, and, and George actually kind of denigrated a wee bit, but if you, if you isolate the bass track for something, 
it's nothing short of sensational. Mm. If you isolate the bass track, which everybody knows for Come Together, if it hadn't been for McCartney's bass line and Come Together, then it doesn't have that voodoo almost feel to it, you know? Mm. Um, and, and also he rescued the track from possible litigation, although it was there was litigation further down the line, but mm. you know, he changed the he changed the mood of the track by suggesting why don't we slow it down? So yeah, come together is a great track uh, for for showing them all four working together, including including it's important to say Ringo Starr's drumming. Ringo mm. Starr's drumming on on uh, on Abbey Road is peerless. And anybody who, who thinks that Ringo's you know, not as you know, uh, was only along for the ride, is is absolute rubbish. You know, mm. four sides, four sides of the same square. If you don't have all sides, then it ain't gonna work. But he's drumming on, uh, drumming in a, a track like "Here Comes the Sun." It's easy to miss it. It's incredible, absolutely incredible. I couldn't agree more, Ken. I couldn't agree more. Drawing toward the end now and looking at a, a slight summing up of 1969. First of all, let's go back to Alan Klein. Do you think that by the end of 1969, that Klein's contributions to the Beatles' management affairs, whatever, can that be a success? Do you think you could deem that a success? What did he achieve and what did he not achieve over the course of the year? Well, he didn't achieve what he said to achieve. He didn't achieve um, that he would, rest, he would get the Beatles' uh, NEMS Enterprises, which was one of their major companies. He didn't rescue Northern Songs, they lost control of Northern Songs, and Apple, you know, became a bit of a, a business husk at the end, you know. It was it was no longer the the business utopia that they all thought it would be. Um and and he was never ever the manager of the Beatles. And at the end of the day, I think he accelerated the breakup um because he, Paul McCartney was never on the board. I mean, I've been very careful with this book, Joe, not to apportion blame. I, I don't I don't think for a second that Yoko Ono on her own uh, broke up the Beatles. Paul McCartney doesn't think that. I don't think Linda Eastman stroke McCartney broke up the Beatles. Um, I think it's a combination of circumstances. But if I had to point the finger at one specific element, then I would I, I do think that the um you know the arrival of Alan Klein uh Within within the whole narrative, is a, is a, is an important part uh, towards the breakup of the band because McCartney was never on board, hated him from the start. He is the he is the demon king of the Beatles story, and 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 as a result, um, McCartney was never on board with him, and and it, and it's difficult to separate your business interests from your musical interests, especially when they overlap so much. Um, and of course, over time, you know, McCartney eventually was what he believes was, and he, and he is right, he was forced into the decision to ultimately sue the other three in order to free himself from the Beatles company as a business entity. So um, if I had to apportion blame to one person more than the other, then I would definitely apportion it to Alan Klein. Um, his involvement within the band was toxic, poisonous, rancorous or any other us you care to throw at. <laughs> um, and at the end of the day then I, I think that um, you know he, he didn't manage to do you know for all his for all the the boasting for all the bragging he didn't really as I say to be devil's advocate he was handed a poison chalice and I'm quite sure that the that the Eastmans were just as mischievous 
as he was, but he was a he was a a, a street hustler and and maybe employed as many dirty tricks as 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 he could get away with. Um, but you know, Lennon even towards the end of nineteen sixty nine, for all that you know, they lost control of names, they lost control of northern songs, their business affairs were almost disastrous. The, the flip side of it, Joe, to be a devil's advocate, is that he did renegotiate a more lucrative royalties deal with EMI and with Capitol Records in America. The Capitol deal in America was the most lucrative um, royalties deal in music history at that time. Um, and it's interesting to note that really, they didn't, he didn't really enjoy the fruits of his labours because the band split up not long afterwards. Um, so, you know, to, to be fair, but would somebody else have been able to negotiate a similar, it's one of those what if moments, you know, we'll never know. So it's a severe could do better for Alan Klein from you. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so on a similar a similar note, I thought just just to finish, we could go through the individual Beatles and just have a very quick kind of summing up of where they're at by the end of 1969. Um, so starting with Ringo, you know, that's a, as good a place as any to start. So he obviously he he films a, a feature film over the course of the year. He's rec- he records a, a solo album, um, and he has got a family, you know, two children by this point and looks like quite a, it would appear quite a content personal life. Obviously he would divorce from Maureen uh, some years later. Do you think Ringo had a, a successful and, and vibrant 1969? No, I don't. I think, I think okay. that um, um, in, in, in September 69, again, part of the Beatle mythology is that Paul McCartney is always the one with the target on his back for being the man who broke, for being the one who walked away first, which of course, anybody who knows anything about the band is rubbish. And and, and in September, Lennon left the band, but it's interesting actually, for, for business reasons, but let people buy it and, and they can make up their own minds. But Lennon wanted a divorce. He made this announcement to, uh, Paul was at the meeting, Ringo was at the meeting, uh, Klein was at the meeting and he said he wanted a divorce and and but he, he agreed to a Beatles or Merta that he wouldn't tell anybody but they all knew and as the days went by and weeks went by and months went by then it became clear that perhaps this really was that moment in the sand Ringo it took it very badly Ringo is the most sentimental of them all you know he you know, you know Ringo is very emotional guy and um, and Ringo's first move, Ringo, Ringo was actually not far. He sat in his back garden and and more or less looked into the the distance and thought, "What the hell am I going to do now?" Because the band was everything, and these were these were like Ringo's an only child, so these guys were like his genuinely like his brothers. So Ringo's very morose. You may think he's morose anyway. He's not. He did have the magic Christian coming out, which got. A lot of very positive reviews. Um, he, he agreed to record his first solo album, which I think was Sentimental Journey. Mm. So, you know, he, he kind of came off the canvas quite quickly. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, he, he thinks, you know, I'm a drummer and I'm a Beatle and I play in a band. And all of a sudden, I don't have any of that. So Ringo uh, had a very sad 
few months closing towards the end of 1969. But it should be said that eventually, you know, he, he found his mojo. They all did. And, and Ringo was, you know, had a very, very, you know, he was quite quick out the gate mm. uh, post-1970 and had actually a good few years where he was actually really, really successful. Um, do you want to mention the rest? Well, George is next, obviously. So George, um, he's free of the Beatles, we think, obviously, by New Year's Eve 1969, which I think he wanted, didn't he, throughout the course of the year. Um, but he's obviously, he's you, you mentioned a lot in the book, personally at home, Patty and he are going separate ways, not helped by Eric Clapton's overt obsession with her. Uh, do you think he's going into, he's going to, into 1970 the solo album, obviously not yet called All Things Must Pass, is is approaching. Do you think he was feeling more positive than Ringo? Do you think he had a, a more successful kind of outlook? Yeah, he he George had begun the process begun the process of almost in a sense networking. You know, he 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 knows a lot of people, he produced a lot of sessions for other people like Doris Troy. Um, you know, he's got great um endorsement from his peers obviously the likes of Clapton despite rock music's most famous menage a trois he's very friendly with Bob Dylan um, and you know his his stature and his own personal self-esteem is really quite high so I think at that point although again he never broke ranks with them at that point he's thinking well you know I've got I mean I've got all these songs I don't really need them I don't really need them uh, and he's quite confident in his own abilities as a songwriter. As I say, he's had all this praise for his most recent songs. Um, and he knows, the public doesn't know, but he knows he's got about about 40 songs that have been recorded in some shape or form. Even the ones that haven't been recorded. I mean, if you take a song like What Is Life, you know, he's just in a very confident place. And um, yeah, his personal life might be, uh, you know, slightly through the floor he's unaware of the patty obsession to Eric at that point either that or the scales have not quite dropped from his eyes right. um, but they will in time um, but you know he's he's in a much happier place he's thinking well the Beatles might be no more but you know 1970 this is ground zero I'm I'm out of here you know he, he doesn't need them you know you know and, and, and if he's not happy I mean cynicism is hot wired into George Harrison's DNA, and 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 he has no filter, Joe. So he doesn't need them. He's quite he's quite convinced that, you know, that was then, but this is now. I'm out of here. In in contrast to a man that, like George, that as you say was so happy, Paul was I suppose the opposite. Really, he he has spoken at length about the depression that he suffered around this time going into 1970. Obviously, he, the fact that he has to sue his three mates, you know, a long way from that summer day in Walton as a teenager when he, he first met John, who, who would have thought then it would be in the, the high court. Um, so he's spoken about depression. He's not, obviously, he's not released anything solo. The, his McCartney album will come the following year. In contrast with all that, Mary is born. He is, was well known for being a family man. He, he had a very good relationship with, with Julian, obviously John's son, probably stronger than John did at, at certain points. So his, his home life is, is set up. But professionally, would you say, you know, he, he was looking into 1970 with a certain amount of fear? 
Yeah, I think that was uh, almost a, almost at that point for Paul McCartney a career in the dear Joe, because all of a sudden, you know, he's lost his best friend. You know, they're not talking. They hadn't spoke towards the end of 1969. They hadn't spoken at all, and these are guys that used to speak every day, more than even if they weren't in the same country. And uh, and he's watching John and Yoko circus taking off, uh, for good or for bad, and you know. After Lennon's announcement in September, and and at first he thinks it's just John being John. I'm sure he'll come round. You know, once he starts to feel the pinch, or once he starts to think he's missing us, he'll probably say, "Look, guys, I was only joking. How do you fancy?" It? Or, or else you phone him up in the spirit of the ballad of John and Yoko and say, "Look, I've got a song here. It just needs a tweak. How, how do you fancy it?" And that call never came. It never came. And gradually, reality seeps, reality takes root in Paul's mind. And he's thinking, oh, my God, this, this really is it. This, this really is it. You know, as he says in, in Dear Friend, the song, you know, you know is, this really the, is this really the borderline? Mm. Well, yeah, it was. This really is the borderline. And, uh, and, he, and so he and, you, he, and you, he and Linda and Mary and uh, uh, Linda's daughter from her first marriage, Heather, hightail it to Scotland. It's quite interesting there's a Scottish symmetry between Lennon and McCartney. Uh, but they hightail it to a guile in Scotland to the Mull of Kintyre, famously. And um, and he's in a terrible state because he thinks, this is it. This is the end. It's not just Abbey Road, it's the end of the road. Mm. And, and, and he went through a natural depression because all of a sudden, you know, he doubts his own abilities as a songwriter. He thinks that he's not, he thinks he's worthless. He begins to display all the traits of somebody who has been made redundant. You know, if we look at Paul McCartney nowadays and over the over the years of his career, you can't really imagine him being a guy who takes solace from the bottle. But he did. He admits that he drank too much. Mm. Um, Lord knows what else was going on in the background, and he grew his beard and and and. You know, it was just a depression set in. And when you think of Paul as thumb, thumbs off Maka, yeah. it's a complete complete antithesis of his personality because he does, he is a very positive sounding guy and he's not somebody who would get down very easily. But this was clearly the worst point of his life, which in stark contrast to his personal life, which had never been better mm. because he's a very family orientated guy. He always mm. has been. Mm. Now he has a daughter of his own. He dotes on. Mm. He was very, you know. I think he eventually adopted Heather. Yes. And and he's in the, in the in the first throes of wedded bliss, so it's a terrible dichotomy that here here for Linda McCartney it must have been it must have been grim because here she is married to this guy, uh, they love each other, they have a family, and at the same time, you know, he can't get out of bed because he thinks that my career's over. I'm, I am now an ex-Beatle. And, and how do I make music if I can't make it with, with John? How do I make it work in the studio if I can't make it work with George and Ringo? So at the end of 1969, sad to say, John, uh, Paul rather, is in a dreadful place. Dreadful. So to finish... I should, I should, maybe, I should maybe qualify that, Joe, by just sure. saying... That just, just right at the end of 1969, he comes back from Scotland and starts to, as you say, I thought it was a lovely way to put it, goes through the gears and, and starts to do the one thing that he can do 
which is to make music. You know, he starts to mould one or two songs together. There are some leftovers from the Let It Be sessions. So slowly, but surely, and it is slowly, then the idea begins to form that, you know, I'll get back to doing what, what I'm supposed to be good at, but it's a long and winding road, and it's a painful long and winding road. It is, but thank goodness that he did. Let's let's just say that the idea of being 27 and thinking that your career is over as a pop star is uh, is is very very strange and hard to digest. I think in today's world. So let's let's finish on John as good a place as any. So he's got his divorce, um, not legally, but obviously I think in his in his heart and in his head he's now out of the Beatles. He's uh, with Yoko, the great love of his life. She's in contrast to, to Linda, suffered a miscarriage, obviously, which they, which, you know, affected them very, very deeply. Uh, but, you know, he, he, he's, he's recovered a bit from that. And he's going into 1970 in contrast to his old partner, ready to, to kind of go again, isn't he, really? He's absolutely galvanised, Joe. Uh, he's galvanised for a number of reasons. He's galvanised because his political activism has elevated him to this uh, idea of being the Pied Piper of Peace, in a sense. You know, um, Give Peace a Chance was played at an, an enormous amount of public demonstrations in America. And, and all of a sudden, you know, he, he is, he's become the most politically, uh, a political advocate for change, uh, very much a, a leader for the youth movement and the peace movement. You know, he stopped his stock is extremely high. He gets audiences with the likes of Pierre Trudeau in, in Canada, you know, and, and, he, and he's, he's been taken extremely serious. I mean, I mean despite the buffoonery of, of the bed-ins, well, now, eight months later, you know, he's been taken very seriously as a political advocate. Uh, and, and, and he loves that because it feeds into his ego and all of a sudden he's not just John Lennon Beatle, but he's John Lennon political activist, and, and he liked that, you know, it, it, it feeds into his ego. Um, at the same time, he's cut his ties with the Beatles and, you know, there's no filter with John, as I say, you know, as far as he's concerned, unlike Paul, it's done. And, and really, I'm not turning back. He has a new life with Yoko. He had played at a rock and roll revival concert in Canada in September uh, with Clapton and Alan White, who became the drummer with Yes and Klaus Vuhrman. And, and he's completely invigorated by the experience, despite being sick with nerves beforehand. But he comes off stage, the first time he had been on stage since August 66, and he's completely energised by the experience. So John Lennon is going into that post beatle future, completely re-energised by the by the whole prospect of ground zero, in a sense, you know, that the 60s are gone and I'm now moving into a new decade. I'm going to divest, di you know, divest myself of Beatle John and I now want to become a serious solo artist. And with Yoko at his side, you know, he's marching very confidently into what he thinks is a much better future. He's unaware of the, the legal difficulties and complexities you know, there's no breaking away from that. But for John, in stark contrast to Paul, he's very confident. He thinks that uh, he has the cojones. He doesn't really need Paul. He doesn't, he doesn't think he needs him. You know, I mean, at that point, they're writing separately anyway. And they would only maybe check each other's work now and again. 
uh, and maybe tweak each other's songs. But you know, you know, much as John had a streak of sentimentality attached to him, at the same time, if it's done, it's done. I mean, to quote, I think it's one of the great, it's one of the great Lennon um, public statements when he says, you know, in that famous Scouse voice, you know, it's only a rock group that's split up. It's nothing important, you know. You've got all the albums and all the songs if you want to wallow in sentimentality, you know. But you know, it, it, I mean, I just love, I love the the nasalness of it all. You know, it's only a rock group that's split up. It's nothing important. <laughs> it's nothing important. If you want to go and listen to the songs, then you know. So for him, it was done and dusted. You know. Well, here we are 51 years later and we're all still wallowing, aren't we? Um, I, I, I'm not sure he, uh, he really appreciated that we would be, but thank goodness we are. Uh, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much, Ken. Yeah, it, it's been an absolute blast. It, Your questions have been brilliant. That's very so kind of you to say. It's so kind of you to say. Uh, yeah, uh, and in the end, The Last Days of the Beatles uh, by Ken McNabb, available in all the places that you would normally find uh, books and such like. Uh, Ken McNabb, thanks very much. Well, I was just going to end in one wee thing, Joe, that Go I always think, thinking very seriously that if, if visitors came to this planet from another world, you know, and somebody met them, I think the greeting would be, welcome to planet Earth. This is the home of the Beatles. We have lots of, lots of cool stuff, but it's not as good. <laughs> I think that's as good as a way to end it. Ken, thanks so much. Well, my, my pleasure, Joe. Take care.